Hello and welcome to the Education Policy Podcast from Voice Community. In this episode, we take a brief look at the report from the STRB. We update you on all things COVID regarding the unlocking and how that affects your plans for the autumn in the here and now. We look at appraisal and target setting in your working life and we bust those timetabling myths. Hello and welcome to July's edition of the Education Policy Podcast. Thank you to those of you who have subscribed and left reviews uh, in various places, either by emailing us or on um, Apple Podcasts or on Podbean. Do let your colleagues know, uh, share it widely and leave your own reviews and follow us where you can on your chosen podcast platform. And finally... Uh, as part of a welcome and I appreciate not all um, of our listeners may be working in schools but most schools have this week broken up so a massive massive thank you and huge respect to all education professionals whether you've broken up or not this week for the massive amount of hard work you've put in over the last 18 months during the Covid times we are going to touch on unlocking in a few minutes time um, but it's the first thing we wanted to say was just thank you so much. We know how hard you will work, not least because Martin and I were both teachers, uh, but because we have regular contact with you all as well. So thanks so much for everything you've done. So following on from that thank you, Martin, hot off the press, seven o'clock yesterday evening on the day we're recording this, the STRB report was released. All the hard work teachers have put in in the last 18 months, what can they expect in terms of a thank you from this government to, to show that they, the government really cares about what teachers have been doing? Sadly, Rob, um, the STRB has agreed with the government's decision to pause pay for public sector workers and therefore the vast majority of school teachers, school leaders will not receive any pay increase uh, this year. Of course, that doesn't stop them receiving an increase in their pay point as part of the appraisal and performance management process, which we'll talk about later. But in terms of whether M6 will increase in value, no, it won't. It won't even increase in value by the cost of inflation, which means that sadly for many teachers, they will actually see a very subtle reduction in the purchasing power that their salary can uh, make. So I think we've we definitely um, mentioned this before, uh, but just perhaps before we go any further, the STRB, exactly what is it, if you, if you don't mind? And, and more importantly, I suppose, what's generally its job and its purpose? So the STRB is the school teachers review body, and they're an independent review body that gather evidence from all the unions and the government and other important stakeholders, and they basically um, respond to the government Um, on teacher pay. There are other independent review bodies for the NHS and for the firefighters, for example, Um, but the STRB responds on behalf of teachers. Independent, but were directed by the Chancellor this year to not consider pay increases. Yes, so unfortunately the STRB have chosen to uh, adhere to the restrictions that the Chancellor put on all of the public sector pay bodies this year to not uh, recommend any pay award. Um, We're really disappointed with this. We had petitioned the review body to say what pay increases it would have recommended even though it might not have been able to make that recommendation themselves. Um, But unfortunately, the pay review body has stuck by the remit which the Secretary of State for Education issued back in September. 
and uh, have have not issued any recommendations for pay increases uh, across the main scale, the upper pay scale or the leadership scales for teachers. So, and I can't help feeling this feels like a little bit of a cop-out. In their recommendations on the pay of teachers, the STRB have said, our remit letter asked us for recommendations only on the pay uplifts for those whose full-time equivalent basic earnings are less than £24,000. And as I said, it does feel to me like that first sentence where they sort of blame the fact they can't recommend any more pay increases on their remit given to them by the Chancellor. Um, you know, I, I understand that that's the case, but it does feel like a little bit of a cop-out. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. We are pleased that the salaries for unqualified teachers who are learning uh, an FTE equivalent of less than £24,000 will receive a subtle uplift. But that uplift is only... £250, although we are pleased that it's a consolidated uplift, which means that in the coming years it will continue to be paid and will form part of their basic salary going forward. We also note that the STRB have commented that the pay pause should not be longer than one year. In fact, they go on to say that they are firmly of the view that anything longer than a one-year pay pause risks having a severe negative impact on the competitive position of the teaching profession. So to be absolutely clear, the STRB have suggested a consolidated award of £250 to all teachers whose full-time equivalent basic earnings are less than £24,000 outside of London, £25,194 in the fringe of London, £27,419 in outer London and £28,681 in inner London. So if you learn less than any of those figures in those regions, there's a consolidated award of 250 quid. Yeah, disappointing, isn't it? Mm. I think we'll leave it there. Do look out for our official press release, which will be coming out uh, later today. We're also submitting a joint press release with all of the other teacher unions and you'll be able to find that on our Facebook page. Okay, carrying on very much still in the here and now. Uh, a bit of a COVID update. Um, Martin, do you want to just appraise everybody of our statement that we've um, got out at the moment? Yeah, thanks, Rob. So, um, as you've already said, Rob, it's been a tough 18 months and we really must applaud the dedication of our members and the whole education workforce at this time. We know that self-isolation and bubbles bursting, it's been incredibly frustrating for pupils, for parents and for staff. And we've called for the issue of bubbles to be reviewed uh, a number of times. So we welcomed the announcements because they ended the speculation. But we are disappointed that this has all been announced in the last weeks of the summer term because of the impact we know that that will have on the workload of the staff who've got to implement these changes. So um, these changes, there was no pressure. Um, no pressure was there for settings to bring these changes in before the end of term. Obviously, as we record, this is pretty much the end of term for everybody. But um, that was the case, wasn't it? So most of the changes which were announced are due to come in uh, in autumn in education settings. And there's no pressure on settings to bring these changes in before the end of term. For settings that work all year round, the key dates are the 19th of July, which has already gone, for the removal of national restrictions on face coverings. And on August the 16th, 
um, which is when self-isolation could really end because from August the 16th, if you are contacted by Test and Trace, um, you will only have to take a PCR test. And if that PCR test is negative, then you will no longer have to self-isolate. And of course, children and those who are under 18 won't have to self-isolate either. And it's certainly our position that um, any member of staff in any workplace, really, um, if they want to continue wearing a mask, should be allowed to continue wearing masks. We would advise that all of the measures which settings, schools and other workplaces have got in place, such as enhanced hygiene, regular hand washing, ventilation and the choice of whether or not to wear face coverings, we would advise that all of these measures are still valid and should continue wherever that is necessary to ensure that a workplace remains safe. It is the uh, duty of the employer to make sure that your workplace is safe for you, for all of the children and for the visitors that might attend. Yeah, and just to say, I think face masks, or the issue with face masks and it being your choice, it extends to, to young people as well, doesn't it? I mean, it may not be as much of an issue in early years settings, for example, but should students in a secondary school or even older students in a primary school want to wear a mask for some reason, there, there, sh- there shouldn't be any reason why not. No, there should be no reason why not. And, and, and on the subject of, of face masks and, uh, and COVID tests, Voice Community has actually been calling for evidence to show that the proposals around uh, negative PCR tests will actually make the workplace safe and protect vulnerable pupils and staff. And this is especially important in nurseries and primary schools where regular pupil testing just doesn't happen. And we want assurances that these settings can implement control measures where they feel they're necessary uh, and proportionate in order to control any uh, outbreaks. So we'll keep members updated on that as we find out more. I do think it's fair to say there is still a little bit of confusion over the need to self-isolate at the moment. I read the government's guidance on this after a conversation with a member um, earlier this week and was left relatively confused and unable to give the member a direct answer myself, you know, in terms of if you've been near somebody who's tested positive uh, for more than 15 minutes cumulative across the day, then there was some um, difference if you'd been face-to-face or within one metre or two metres, and it is quite confusing still. yeah. I think you're right, and uh, one of the things that we are are continuing to do is we continue to meet with the Department for Education and the Department for Health and social care and we will continue to do that over the summer holiday and hopefully some of the guidance uh, that comes out between now and when settings fully reopen in the autumn uh, will help to bring some clarity on these issues. Okay so, so moving on from um, the here and now and Covid and we can talk about that to the cows come home I'm sure but moving on from that into uh, our section we like to call Your Working Life. We decided this uh, month that it might be a good time to think about um, appraisal and performance management. A number of members have been in touch with concerns about performance management and the targets they've been previously set or the targets that may be set for them next year. So targets, Martin, and now I know generally speaking we're in favour of appraisal process in general, or it's, at least we consider that to be a good thing. We don't necessarily like that it's linked to pay, do we? We've, we've, we relatively vehemently disagree with that. Vehemently disagree. Great vehemently. word is vehemently. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we broadly agree in the sense that schools, colleges or the education settings, that they will generally undertake performance management of their staff throughout the year. And this can help employers to identify strengths and to offer support 
where it's necessary to those uh, staff who are underperforming. And in that sense, performance management can be a good thing because it can be and should be a supportive process. Where training is given or CPD opportunities are provided where, you know, there's a there's an identified area of need for, for that sort of training. It should be a about growing shouldn't it and 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 improving your practice absolutely should be about improving your practice and so the fact that a number of members have been in touch to talk about their targets at this point in the year when most teachers and TAs will be coming up to the end of year review is quite worrying because teachers and TAs should have had their targets agreed with them we know that a lot of these targets will have been affected by COVID and um, all the disruption that that's caused. However, schools should have been aware of COVID when they were setting these targets back last September. Let's be honest, um, we'd already had a, a summer of disruption. So schools were aware of COVID and the uh, effect that that could have on their normal practices. We're now coming up to the review meetings period and whilst staff should regularly receive feedback on observations and their performance throughout the year, there is no need for formal interim review meetings. However, there is a requirement for there to be an annual review meeting at the end of the appraisal cycle. And this process, as we've said, is designed to be a developmental and supportive process and any issues should be identified and addressed well in advance of the annual review. There should be no surprises when it comes to the annual review meeting. And if there have been any issues uh, raised with you, then you should have already been given an opportunity and support to address any of those issues. So just maybe just to rewind slightly, in a nutshell, and I will come back to other professions in a moment, targets should be agreed. Yep. They should be agreed with you. Yep. And you should avoid accepting targets which will set you up to fail. Definitely. Now, usually, in my experience, there was three targets. Three targets is the uh, recommendation. Uh, and I, I don't know how, you know, all schools perhaps do them differently, but mine were usually a, an individual one, a departmental one, a whole school one. Yeah, those sorts of practices are pretty good. Obviously, we've said that you should agree your targets. It's very difficult to disagree with a whole school target. You know, where, where these uh, targets are going to be directly accountable to you, it's important that you're, as you've said, not set up to fail and have an actual hand in, in achieving those. And those targets, they don't have to be data-driven, like, for example, getting 50% of your class a grade uh, four or above. They don't have to be that, but I guess it's important to make sure that whatever targets you're agreeing are able to be evidenced. Absolutely. Evidence is really important. We would argue that you should never be set data-dependent targets. And in fact, uh, the Department for Education published a document uh, a few years ago called Making Data Works, which states that pay progression should never be dependent on quantitative assessment metrics such as test outcomes. So it's really important that you also are not held to account purely on the data. Yes, the data can contribute to the overall picture, but it's not just about the data. So you've set your targets. Now, that usually happens in Teachers for Schools sometime around the October time. Yep. You've set your targets and then, you know, you, the year starts and you go about trying to start work towards achieving these targets. Um, now, throughout the year, there may be, as you just mentioned, review meetings and regular feedback's good. There may be some observations throughout the year and the feedback from those observations is absolutely critical. And you have an opportunity during those review meetings to raise your concerns as well. And then at the end of the year, perhaps even at the start of an academic year, perhaps even in September, there's an annual review. And then and that's when you sort of you're, you're, you're signed off or you're ticked off or whatever it, it, it should that's be. That's right. Yeah. It's really important uh, that staff 
know what to expect. And the performance management appraisal process should be outlined in a, in a document which tells you the timeline for the events. It tells you whether you will be observed and how often you'll be observed and, and the format of that observation. And most schools and colleges follow the academic year beginning, as you said, with the planning meeting in the September-October time. It's, it's important uh, that schools have a policy and that they follow it, but it's also important that you as a appraisee understand what can be asked of you. So make sure you have a read of that policy because that will tell you an awful lot of information about the way appraisal works in your setting. Now, as we said, that's generally speaking for teachers in a school. Now, if you remember support staff in a school, I suppose generally speaking, you're likely to have a similar thing because you're in the same workplace. What about those workplaces that are, that are not schools, nurseries, for example? private nurseries? So there is no requirement on any uh, workplace to have a performance management or appraisal process but like we've said they can be really helpful and in a supportive workplace they can help employers to identify strengths and also to offer support to those staff who might need it. So we do think that performance management is a good thing even in nurseries. They can also help to identify what training might be required and this can help you to develop your career and to improve your performance and actually that can then make the workplace a better place. It can make it better for the children that attend there and it can make the workplace a more supportive environment for everyone that works there. There really is an emphasis, certainly in our opinion, I think on on support you know this isn't a punitive exercise and not passing a performance manual or not meeting all your targets is probably a much better way of putting it doesn't necessarily automatically mean that it has to lead to capability process no absolutely and we know that covid has been hugely disruptive throughout this year it's disruptive lessons it's disrupted uh, lesson observations and, and had all sorts of other impacts but COVID itself shouldn't prevent you from successfully completing this year's performance management cycle. In fact, it's never actually necessary to meet all your targets in order to pass. For example, there could be circumstances where you've made great progress towards a target and have chosen to extend that target into a future year, in which case you can pass on the strength of the other targets that you have achieved. And as you've said, failure to meet your targets doesn't automatically lead to a capability process. Although, you know, if you've failed on all of your targets, then perhaps there are reasons that need to be looked into. It may be that those targets were not appropriate in the first place, or it may be that circumstances have conspired and prevented you from achieving those targets. For example, um, illness or absence from the workplace. Last point then, perhaps in this section, we did say at the start that whilst we think uh, appraisal processes are good, having it linked to pay is bad. Now, evidence, in fact, does show that it's a bit of a failed experiment, really, particularly in education. So, you know, it doesn't drive performance improvement. So, the really, why do it? So, if that is something that's still happening, perhaps in your workplace, maybe that's something you could consider talking with your line manager about. Finally, if you do have any problems, and you are a member, of course, uh, then please do get in touch with us to discuss the situation with the duty officer. And the number for that is 01332 372 337. Some of what we've said today was in our most recent newsletter, wasn't yeah, it, Yeah, that's right. It went out in the final COVID news update uh, a couple of weeks ago. We, we put out regular um, newsletters or updates and so on and so forth uh, for the different regions. So please do, you know, look, look at that information and, and, and take that in as well. Absolutely. And of course, if you want to find out more, visit our website where you can download our information sheet on performance management, appraisal, classroom observation and a whole host more. Go to www.voicetheunion.org.uk. 
Finally, moving on to our last section, Mythbusters. Boom! This month, we have, based on the time of year it is, decided to have a go at busting some timetables and duties myths. So, first of all, really easy one for you. I know it is, Martin. Break duties. Break that duties. That morning break. Do you, Does a teacher have to do a break duty if they're told to do it? Yeah, pretty okay. much. So, TAs and teachers both have break duties included in their working time. For teachers, it's part of their directed time. And for support staff, it will often be a part uh, of their working hours. Uh, and so, yeah, break duties is reasonable. It's reasonable to do it as part of a rotor. It's unreasonable to be expected to do it all the time. And it's also reasonable for you to be able to pop to the loo or grab a drink during that break time whilst also fulfilling that duty. This is always the battle, I think, for teachers is... On the one hand, you know, sort of working time rules and regulations in this country means that if you're working for eight hours, you're entitled to a certain amount of, of, of time as a break. Now, for teachers and people in schools, that usually comes at dinner times, whatever it might be, across the period of a day. It doesn't mean it's break times. Of course, what's different for a teacher compared to someone who works in an office is they can't just get up, go and have a cup of tea or have a wee whenever they want one. They've got to do it in the break times. And if you're doing a duty, it makes it doubly difficult. Yeah, okay, absolutely. but break duties, yeah, that's part of your directed time. Now, we know that for teachers, their directed time across a whole year is 1,265 hours, working over a maximum of 195 days, 190 of which are teaching days. Now, your favourite saying to me, Martin, is always, this is a maximum not a target. Maximum, not a target. And always check your contract because there can be some variations here. Uh, for example, we know that some uh, academy trusts require their staff to work extra hours over extra days. And for that, they pay their staff extra money. So you're absolutely right. Maximum, not a target. And check your contract just to be sure. It's also important, whilst we're on the subject of directed time, that schools leave space for extra meetings. So, you know, at the start of a year, it's probably not a good idea to, to release a, t a calendar that includes all 1,265 hours because there's going to be times in the year where you need a little bit of an extra meeting on something. It's a good idea. I mean, one, one of the recommendations we heard was that the 1,265 hours, schools should aim to direct about 1,230 of those, allowing one hour each week just in case time. Now, it's highly unlikely that you'll need to use any of that just in case time in September or at the beginning of the autumn term. But as things develop, maybe you get an Ofsted inspection, maybe something else occurs along the way where you need to suddenly grab a couple of hours for an emergency meeting. If you've done this and you've saved one hour every week, then you have the freedom to do that without coming close to those 1265 hours. It's really important to point out that once you have exceeded those 1265 hours, teachers can refuse to undertake any more directed work because their contract has been fulfilled. Conscious that this is meant to be a short section on myth-busting <laughs> uh, timetables and duties, and we've probably got a whole section here, maybe for another one in the future, on uh, directed time and what constitutes directed time. We'll make a note of that. But I'm going to move you on to dinner duties. Dinner duties are not part of directed time. They're often not included in a TA's contract either. Although, again, 
check the contract because some TAs, particularly those who work one-to-ones or those who work with SEND pupils, might have to support that young person in eating, either through uh, helping to feed them or, or maybe just to cut up their food. It's absolutely vital that you check your contract. For the majority of time, teachers and support staff are not directed to work at lunchtime and should not be directed to undertake duties at lunchtime without an additional contract and additional pay to cover that time. So continuing our theme of our favourite phrase, check your contract there for us, is that the case for everyone or are there some people who are teachers uh, where that where they might have to do dinner duties. Senior leaders are entitled to an uninterrupted lunch break, but that doesn't have to occur during the school's dinner time. And senior leaders, those on the leadership pay scale, deputy heads, etc., can be required to undertake supervision during lunchtime. Okay, we get questions like this from members all the time, and the questions tend to go along the lines of, can they ask me to do a dinner duty? And the answer is, They can ask, but you can say no. Absolutely. Dinner duties can be asked of you. And in exchange for you agreeing, it is reasonable for you to be paid. Now, that could be paid in in, in money or maybe you are paid by being given a school dinner uh, as, as a thank you for that. But the important thing is, unless it is a part of your contract, you cannot be required to work a lunch duty. Yeah, so I used to do a lunch duty. It was offered to us, um, you know, as a, as a, do you want to do this? And we did it and we got paid. So I got, I got a few quid, 80 quid a month, I think it worked out as in the end, which, you know, paid for me fuel maybe and, uh, and got me meals every day. So how does all this fit into timetables? I mean, we know about now is the time of year, if your school's well organised, that you're getting your new timetable for September. This came about this month because we did have a couple of queries from members on their timetables, particularly around things like non-contact time. So I'm not exactly sure what the myth is here, Martin, but if you can maybe talk to us a bit about non-contact time, timetables, rotors, those sorts of things. Timetabling is often considered to be a bit of a dark art, you know, sort of the thing that Voldemort would be into. But actually, timetabling is normally uh, something which takes an awful lot of planning and organising. And uh, the the person that does the timetabling in in, in your setting is someone that uh, should be, you know, quite rightly praised for doing an amazing job. But it's easy for them to get shot down when something doesn't go right. Most people in an education setting, a college, university, even some nurseries operate some sort of rotor or timetable. Rotors can change regularly. You can have a different rotor each week, but timetables in schools and colleges tend to remain the same for the whole of the academic year. It's important with any timetable to check it and to make sure that it fits with the terms of your contract. For example, you cannot be required to work for any part of a non-working day if you are employed part-time. However, Just because you've always worked Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday does not mean that you will only ever be asked to work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Many teacher contracts, many support staff contracts will suggest that the um, employee is available to work for a part of the week, but it doesn't specify which days of the week. So if you are unsure, check your contract, check your contract, check your contract. If it says in your contract that you are only available to work on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, then your employer has to adhere to that. If it says that you are contracted to work 0.6 of full time, 
then the days can change. Your employer should discuss any changes with you because obviously you might have other commitments on the non-working days. You may be a carer for a parent or for a child or in fact you might even have another job somewhere else for those other days. So we would hope, wouldn't we, that, that there's a reasonable um, conversation around this to have employer to employee. But essentially what you're saying is, if last year as a part-time worker you worked Monday and Tuesday, if you've done that for five years, it doesn't mean that next year they might they might timetable you on to work Thursday and Friday. It doesn't guarantee it, but obviously if you've been doing that forever, then there is a good argument that the school should, wherever possible, maintain that. There are lots of other issues with timetables. For example, if you work on a, a multi-site school where you've got to travel between different buildings, the person doing the timetabling might not have taken into account any travelling time. So it's well worth you checking and highlighting any issues as far in advance as you can so that they can be addressed. Most of the time these errors are not deliberate, they just happen because someone hasn't even considered the possibility that that might be a problem. Yeah there might be glaring mistakes. Again in my career I worked at a split site school and you'd be timetabled on to do a form in one building and then the other building that was you know 10 minutes away you'd be then timetabled on to do period one in there. Well it's an obvious glaring mistake, it's not something necessarily need to be calling uh, a union about it's just something to go and talk to your line manager about and, and have it lined out yeah talk to your line manager so the other common query we get on timetables is about non-contact time now there's a lot of things to perhaps consider here it might seem straightforward but perhaps not because you have support staff you've got people working in nurseries who sometimes get given non-contact time there are teachers who have to have non-contact time but how much and does it have to all be together in one slot and there's being asked to do other things during your non-contact time now there's a lot there to get through martin but non-contact time. So let's start with teachers. Teachers are required under the terms of their contract to get 10% of their timetabled time dedicated to PPA time. They cannot be directed to what they should undertake during that time. That is protected non-contact time for planning. Some teachers might also have additional non-contact time where they are not required to teach, but during that non-contact time, they could be directed to undertake other duties such as supervision, or to do cover perhaps. Some HLTAs, particularly if they are required to deliver lessons or maybe do some planning for small group activity, might also be given PPA time so that they can prepare for their sessions. It's much less common for TAs and other support staff to have any sort of non-contact time or PPA time because usually their work would be directed by the teacher. What about unqualified teachers, first of all? Did, did they get non-contact time? Unqualified teachers, in the same way as qualified teachers, should get 10% of their timetable as PPA time. And the other thing here uh, is, is, is NQTs, isn't it? Because NQTs get more than 10%. They get 20%, right? From September, early career teachers, as they're now going to be called, you're absolutely right, qualify for 10% of PPA time, just the same as everybody else, and then they qualify for an additional 10% support in their first year. And then in the second year of qualification, they also get an extra 5% of non-contact time in order to uh, undertake training activities, in order to go and do observations, basically in order to support them to become a better teacher. And the reason that we're talking in percentages is, of course, if you are a part-time teacher, it's, 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 just, it's just a 10% of whatever you're kind of, you're working. So yeah. it, it can be difficult for schools to work out. Um, and it is worth trying to perhaps work it out yourself to make sure you're getting the right amount 
amount. It's worth pointing out that PPA doesn't have to be delivered within one week. So if your school works a two-week timetable, for example, it's perfectly acceptable, although inconvenient, for you to have more PPA in one week than in the other, as long as over the course of that timetable, it averages out to be 10% of your timetable time. One of my faults often is that I think in always in terms of secondary schools where I taught, where it's you know quite straightforward. If you have a 20 lesson week, then 10% is two lessons that you should have off. In a primary school, uh, it, it seems to me the norm is to have an entire morning or an entire afternoon off timetable. Yeah, that is more normal, although it really depends on, on how the timetable has been organised. And it is much more common for teachers to be given PPA time during things like assemblies and also during foundation subjects where they may have specialist providers come in, for example, to deliver PE. So we did mention um, support staff briefly there. I mean, we know they don't get non-contact time contractually, but it's the same applies really. If there's any glaring mistakes, you know, you're supporting a child in one room and then you're expecting the next lesson to be on the other side of a school 10 minutes away, you know, it, it, it may be worth just talking to your line manager about. Absolutely. And, and things like resources as well. Um, y- you know, um, some TAs will work exclusively in one room with one department and therefore they'll have uh, immediate access to all of the equipment, paper, pens that they might need. Other TAs follow children around and so therefore they may have to make sure that they uh, carry with them a suitable amount of resources or arrange with the teachers to have storage in, in the other rooms. So it's worth just checking out how this timetable will actually work in practice. And back to nurseries then. I, mm. I, I'm aware, you know, I've sp- definitely spoken to members in the past who have a certain amount of non-contact time built in to allow them to do you know, whatever admin tasks they may be required to do. And But whilst it is important that you have enough time to do the tasks you're being given, there is no non-contact time specifically in your contract. So final point then on this Mythbusters, nursery staff, whilst it may not be um, part of a official timetable, they should be paid for meetings at work. Meetings, especially meetings that are after work, once the children have gone home, are really important for nurseries to share training, to update staff on what's going on. But these should be paid for. And if they occur on a non-working day, Whilst you can be asked to attend, you cannot be required to attend. And if they happen after work, but you've worked in the morning, then that time between the end of your work and the start of your meeting, where it's trapped and unusable and is time where you can't go home, so you can't really do anything, then it is also reasonable for that time to be paid too. The same goes for school staff as well. If you're part-time and there's a meeting after school and you can't go home between the end of your working day and the start of the meeting, but you're required to attend the meeting, that trapped time, it's reasonable for that to be included in the directed time calculation. And it's reasonable for you to work during that time. Yes. So So a good example of that trapped time you're talking about that should be included in directed time is your school finishes at three o'clock, parents evening doesn't start till half past four, that hour and a half you're probably going to work it. You're not going to go home. You're probably going to do some work and it should be counted in your directed time. And on that note, we have bust another myth. So another episode of the podcast done for another month. Um, It's only left for us to say our usual uh, upcoming events and so on and so forth. So 
The virtual conference is still there to listen again. If you go to voicetheunion.org.uk, it's in the blog section of the website. So you can go there to find it. And if you go there, you can also watch short video clips, particularly of Baroness Lawrence and Peter Kyle MP talking about the future of education. Coming soon is a supply staff survey. So if you are a supply worker, um, please look out for that coming into your emails shortly. We love getting feedback from people. You know, the whole ethos of our organisation is that we are driven by our members, so we need feedback, and that includes on this podcast as well. So if you do want to give us any feedback, get in touch with us at educationpolicy at community dash tu.org we've remembered it finally um, you can also follow voice community on twitter at voice the union for news shared content and resources also we're also on facebook uh, where the address is facebook.com forward slash community union and if you do require any help and advice if you're a member contact us on 01332 372 337 thanks for listening and we'll see you again on another education policy podcast